So Mark chapter 3, and we'll begin reading at verse 22. And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. And he calleth them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? And if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Because they said he hath an unclean spirit. Amen. May God bless to us uh, this reading uh, from his word. This passage that we have before us this evening speaks to us about the uh, healing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, once again and it speaks to us of the way in which that ministry was received by those around about. And when we think about the way in which Mark is teaching us in these opening chapters of the Gospel of Mark or as we've seen the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ it is very clear that the structure of Mark's presentation is to show us that the Lord's healing ministry created great interest uh, in the uh, community and in the towns and the villages where he preached. And indeed, that ministry created uh, that interest and, and gathered that audience by design. Uh, generally, that is the purpose of miracles in the Word of God. Uh, they bear witness to the power of God and they attest the authority that the miracle worker has when he brings that message, that he bears the message of God, the message of the gospel, the revelation of God, and whether that was in the Old Testament prophecies or the New Testament uh, apostolic ministry, the miracles were intended, they were designed to show the authority of the miracle worker. The, the miracle in itself was not an end in itself, but rather it generated an interest and it gathered an audience so that the message could be conveyed, the gospel could be preached, and the authority of the speaker would be attested. And the divine source, obviously, of that message was thereby revealed. In the case of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those things are true. And also, 
there is because of the sheer quantity and the sheer uh, magnitude of the miracles that were performed, the evidence of divinity also. And we see that both in the testimony of uh, those who, who gathered, who, who seemed sure that, that no mere man could perform the works that the Lord Jesus Christ did. We saw that in the testimony of Nicodemus, for example. Uh, we know that there were the teachers sent from God because of the works that, that he did. And we remember how the Lord silenced those uh, devils who uh, were uh, sent out of those individuals that they possessed, uh, they invariably could testify of the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were silenced from doing so. And so the miracles of the Lord, uh, particularly his healing ministry perhaps, showed the kindness of Christ, showed his concern for the people that he was ministering to. And we may well say evidenced his love towards them as well. And it was self-evidently obvious that this work of Christ, this, this healing ministry that he was performing, the way in which he spoke, the way in which he acted, the authority and, and, and bearing that he had was clearly the work of God in his life. And it would be uh, to the point of perversity to think otherwise, to deny uh, that this was the hand of God, having observed the Lord Jesus Christ at work, uh, would uh, be quite contrary to any uh, uh, normal way of thinking. And the Lord Jesus Christ uh, testified this point himself. For example, he says in John chapter 5 and, and verse 36, I have greater witness than that of John, speaking of John the Baptist. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do, are um, the same works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father hath sent me. So this was the Lord Jesus Christ attesting that the works that he did, the miracles that he performed, uh, the works that had been given him to do by the Father, those works he did and those works bear witness of him that the Father had sent him. And in John chapter 10 verse 32, we find that the Lord Jesus again, speaking to those who opposed him, uh, said, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do ye stone me? And so again, it was so obvious, it was so clear from the ministry of the Lord Jesus, both his works and his words, that it was a divine work that was being performed at this time. And in John chapter 14, verse 11, again, the Saviour says to his own disciples, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. There was no denying that God the Father was involved and at work 
and manifesting himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here is a divine revelation. And those who watched Christ, those who looked on, those who saw those miracles being performed, they wondered, they were amazed, they, they, they were astounded. And, and so frequently in the gospel accounts, we find words like amazement and astonishment being used to describe the reaction of the crowds to the miracles that the Lord Jesus Christ performed. There was wonder. He was wonderful and people wondered at the things that they saw him doing. So much so that it would take a certain willful obstinacy to see the Lord Jesus Christ perform a miracle, to hear him speak and yet fail to acknowledge the glory of God in him. Who could possibly be in the, the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, see these works being performed, watch and observe the reaction of the people around about him and fail to see the glory of God manifested in that situation. Who could possibly do that? Well, let me introduce you to the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. And these were men who were religious leaders in their age. They were people who had a long tradition of scriptural awareness and teaching and uh, uh, ministry and exposition. They read the prophets every week. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They studied the things that Moses and David and Elijah and, and, and Jonah and Isaiah had to say. And yet here, when the God that they espoused came amongst them, as he had promised that he would, and that they ostensibly, in seeking the Messiah, in looking forward to the uh, revelation of the anointed one amongst them, um, from their Old Testament prophecies, anticipated, nevertheless failed to see the true identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. These scribes and Pharisees that we have presented to us in this little passage this evening are said to be the Jerusalem scribes and Pharisees. And I suspect that that is put in there by Mark to just show us that these were some of the, the top teachers. These were some of the important ones. Undoubtedly, if there were scribes and Pharisees in the provinces, uh, they would gravitate to Jerusalem. Perhaps if they had any particular wisdom or if they were in any way uh, uh, promoted or if they could establish themselves as uh, suitable teachers and, and, and wise interpreters, then they would gravitate towards Jerusalem. And the fact that here we are in Galilee, and that the Jerusalem scribes, and uh, according to, to Matthew, the Pharisees were amongst them as well, that these Jerusalem scribes and Pharisees had come to, to um, uh, 
Galilee, they'd, they'd come up, sorry, they'd come down. Jerusalem was higher than, than Galilee. They'd come down from Jerusalem. These men were a long way from home. And uh, it seems perhaps that it had been better if they had stayed at home. They were coming out to the provinces in order to sit in judgment upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It's probably quite likely that they imagined that they might be able to expose Jesus as a fraud, that they might be able in some way to uh, rebuke the the gullible Galileans for uh, um, being being so readily uh, taken in by by this charlatan, this this so-called miracle worker, but, but whose miracles were really just a fraud. They probably thought that they might settle all the silly talk that there was back in Jerusalem, that something major was afoot in Galilee because of the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what these scribes and Pharisees reveal to us is what we, we might call the pretentiousness of religion. Because the Lord Jesus Christ's dealings with these men throughout his ministry and, and his dealings with the formal religion invariably exposed the contempt that religious people had for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I fear that there is little has changed down through the centuries. And there is little different today. The outcome of this particular message that we have this evening, it shows that men can talk about God and they can speculate and they can postulate and they can imagine and they can endeavour to to, uh, teach one another and and delve into the the details of their religious organisation. But true personal faith can nevertheless pass them by. And this is what we must remember. Religion in and of itself will never take an individual closer to Christ. And there is much religion in the world. Indeed, we might well say that there is more religion in the world today than ever there has been. And people are committed and dedicated to their religion. They're committed to their church. They're they're, identifying with it, they're they're living under its direction, they give their allegiance to their ministers or their pastors or their teachers, and they live their whole life following a particular religious way of uh, acting. And they never enter into true faith in Jesus Christ or that personal spiritual experience of God in Christ. No religious structure, no denomination, no uh, um, uh, idea or, or thought or conjecture that emanates from the natural heart of man, no pattern of life 
No pedigree of history. No endorsement of ministerial or doctoral excellence can ever substitute for Holy Spirit regeneration, divine conversion or spiritual life in an individual. And it is that spiritual life that we long for. It is that experience of God through the Holy Spirit's dealings with us in our soul. It is that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, to use Christ's own words to Nicodemus, being born again, born from above, that we desire in our hearts. If the Lord will bring us to newness of life, if God the Holy Spirit will create in us a new heart, then there is something real. Then there is something true. Then there is something meaningful. And everything else is just words. Everything else is just routine. And everything else is ultimately just dead. Faith is nothing if it isn't a real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And hope for heaven, hope for eternal life is is baseless if it is founded on nothing but fantasy. And men slap each other's backs on, on, on the way to hell telling one another that everything is all right with their soul, that everything is fine with their life. I'm sure that any of us have, who have attended funerals can attest that invariably the person who has died, who is, who is being uh, um, remembered in that funeral service, is spoken of as if he's in heaven or she's in heaven almost regardless of the kind of life that they have lived. And people are given this false sense of security by their religious structures, by their religious formalism. Let us always be seeking a reality of spiritual life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us endeavour to deepen our relationship with him. These Jerusalem scribes and Pharisees, they are a picture of man-made religion. And the reality is that it is accusing and it is dismissive of the true Jesus Christ and true spiritual life. Look at the accusations that these men hurled at the Lord Jesus Christ. They accused him of demonism. And it's, it's almost extraordinary the degree to which religion will set itself up in opposition to God. And they can use the language of the Bible. They can use the, 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 the formularies. They can use the, the, the structures, the examples, the patterns of, of the Bible and of religion. And yet at the heart of it, it is so contrary and opposed to the things of Christ that these religious leaders, these men steeped in Moses and the Old Testament scriptures, these men who could quote Isaiah and Jeremiah and the, the, the Psalms off by heart, could look into the face of God himself in the person of Jesus Christ and call him 
the devil. Matthew tells us that the occasion of this dialogue between the Lord Jesus Christ and these uh, scribes and Pharisees was the healing of a blind and dumb man. And uh, Matthew in his parallel passage uh, speaks of of the, the miracle. Mark doesn't mention it, but Matthew tells us the miracle that took place prior to this conversation. Interestingly enough, the man is described as being blind and dumb. He's not referred to at all as being deaf, um, which is often a condition that would go along uh, with with that um, inability to speak. But we are told that it was a demonic condition. We are told that the man was in this condition not because there was something physically wrong with him, not because he had been born with a physical impairment or disability, but because a devil had entered into him. A devil had possessed him. And that was a devil that caused blindness and dumbness to this individual. And therefore, when the Lord Jesus Christ healed that man, the healing was to exercise that devil, that demon, from the possessed man. And it was clear to all who had observed these things that the Lord Jesus Christ had power over the devils. He had cast this devil out. He had rid this man's body of the devil that possessed it and thereby had healed the man. And we're told in Matthew chapter 12 with respect to this miracle being performed, verse 23, that all the people were amazed. All the people that were were there gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ, I guess we, we assume by that with the exception of these scribes and Pharisees, the people said, the ordinary people, the common people, they said, is not this the son of David? You see, the ordinary people Those who listened to these scribes and Pharisees week by week in the synagogues and and, and in the religious meeting houses, they too were anticipating the son of David coming. They too thought that surely the time was soon. Surely this Messiah that had been long promised would be amongst them. And who could perform works like these if God were not with him? And so the people were amazed and declared publicly, audibly, is not this the son of David? Surely this is the promised Messiah. Now, while the actual miracle is not mentioned in Mark, we do have immediately in this passage the response of the scribes. And that response is to accuse the Lord Jesus of casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub. When they saw that demon, that that devil being dispossessed of that man's body, their reaction was to declare again publicly and to those people around about, to support one another in their allegations and accusations of the Lord, that this was a demonic act that the Lord Jesus Christ had performed. They 
accused the Lord of being the devil. They accused the Lord of being Beelzebub, the prince of the devil. Now, that's a, that's a strong language. And uh, it's interesting, this word Beelzebub, it, it's, it's a, a word which is used in the New Testament with respect to the, um, the, the, the prince of devils, or, or indeed Satan himself, the king of the devils. And it is probably a reference to uh, an idolatrous god of a nation that the Jews had known uh, during the, the, the time of the Old Testament. There is a suggestion that what it means is the Lord of the flies or the, the God who is a fly. And it may have had reference to the Chaldean God or indeed the, the gods of the Egyptians. It may have been something that was brought out of Egypt, uh, an awareness of the idolatrous conduct of the Egyptians during the days of the children of Israel being in servitude in that land. Whatever it was, they drew it out of their Old Testament history and they called the Lord Jesus Christ Beelzebub. And so here was the Christ who had been foretold by all the prophets of the Old Testament, having this name of the king of demons or of Satan himself, an idolatrous God laid upon his shoulders. These men were attributing the divine power that was evidenced in the Lord Jesus Christ, the merciful kindness that he showed to those who were blind and dumb or whatever the particular illness or sickness might be. They were attributing to the message spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-honouring gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that this was no more and no less than the work of the king of devils. And these scribes and Pharisees, these ignorant hypocrites, stood in the judgment of God. They considered the evidence of the power and they publicly declared that Christ was possessed of an unclean spirit by which he worked the works that he performed. So this was a serious allegation that these men were laying upon Christ. Here were the people acknowledging that this surely must be the promised Messiah, the son of David. And here were these false teachers, not only contradicting them by saying no, but attributing the power that the Lord Jesus Christ had and exhibited to Satan himself. And so the Lord Jesus Christ uses the opportunity of the denial of these men to expose uh, their false thinking, the, their, 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 the, the illogical opinions, as it were, that they were expressing. He, he showed them that even naturally speaking, using their own proverbs, using uh, their, their own uh, knowledge of, of life and, and the world, that this was such a, a foolish idea that they were postulating, that what they were suggesting was sheer 
ludicrous. And he uses three different arguments to speak against these men. And we can see these in the verses that are before us. So uh, look, for example, at verse 23. And here we can see the Lord's first response uh, to these men for these allegations that they were making. And he called them unto him and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? So he says to them, You say that Satan is casting out Satan. Explain to me, if you will, how does that work? How is it possible that Satan can cast out Satan? And he goes on to say, It is self-evident from the world around about us. Verse 24, If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Whether you're, you're, you're talking about a nation, whether you're talking about a, a government, whether you're talking about a political movement, whether you're talking about families, whether you're talking even about churches in our own days, any organisation that has infighting in it cannot stand. It will not stand. If it rises up against itself, it divides itself and it cannot stand. If Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand but hath an end. Verse 26. And here we see the, the wisdom with which the Lord Jesus Christ contradicted and confounded these foes of his. And it's interesting just to, to see how the, the Lord's uh, uh, words spoke with such self-evident truthfulness. It's also interesting to see that the way in which the Lord presents this argument tells us that he understands and acknowledges that Satan has a kingdom over which he is king, that Satan is himself a tyrant and must maintain a form of unity and common purpose among the devils in order to maintain his rule. That's the assumption upon which the Lord's argument is based here. And that's quite interesting, I think, because what that tells us is that the, the, the devil, in a sense, is, is no different from the organizations that we see in the world around about us. That the devil, too, must juggle the demands of leadership. That the devil must, must manage his kingdom in order to maintain his own rule over that kingdom. And he cannot be divided against himself or his kingdom will fail. And so the first argument that the Lord uses against these people is it doesn't make sense what you've just said. That in some way the devil is casting out the devil. Because no house that is divided against itself can ever possibly stand. Rather, says the Lord, and here he enters into the second part of his argument. Rather, if anyone is going to cast out a devil, he must be more powerful than that devil in order to cast 
him out. And he, in verse 27, goes on to speak about the strength that he has as Lord of all in order to overthrow and cast out the demons that possess these men. He says in verse 27, No man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house. Now, uh, this is a, a parable uh, in the sense that he, it is giving us a picture which conveys to us a spiritual truth. And so we can take this parable and we can as it were, tease it out with spiritual applications. The Lord says simply, no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man and then he will spoil his house. Who is he talking about? Well, he's talking about what he has just done to this blind and dumb man. He has, as it were, gone into Satan's house and spoiled his goods. He has gone into the house of the strong man. And so it is Satan that is being likened here to a strong man. And if a strong man keeps his house, then his goods will be protected, his goods will be defended, unless a stronger man is able to come into the house into the palace, into the kingdom and overthrow and defeat the strong man. And so Satan must be defeated first in order for his goods to be spoiled. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is setting himself up as that one who is greater than Satan. And he is revealing to those Pharisees and scribes, no doubt, but also to the common people also who were in attendance and observing and listening to these things, this dialogue, this, this, this contention between the Lord's accusers and uh, the Lord himself with his defense. And he is showing them, you are accusing me of being Satan, but the evidence is that I am stronger than Satan. Satan won't cast out Satan, for a house will not be divided by, upon itself and stand. But rather, one who is stronger must enter the house, dispossess the strong man, and lead captivity captive. To take, as it were, that which is the possession of the strong man, and liberate it, and set it free. And the Lord is saying to these people, I am that stronger Man, I am that one who is superior to Satan. I am that one who can displace and dethrone him. And the evidence of me doing that is the liberty which has entered into this poor soul's body and mind. And that's what Christ does. That's what Christ does when he comes and liberates a sinner. That's what Christ does when he regenerates a soul. That's what he does when he comes with life-giving power into the heart of a, 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 a lost soul and makes a new creation. God the Holy Spirit, 
And the work of the triune God is engaged in the salvation of a sinner. To overthrow the strong man, to overthrow the power of Satan and to bring liberty to the captive and to set his people free. The Lord Jesus Christ is saying to these scribes and Pharisees and the people around about him and and to us also who read these words and hear these things declared. Behold, look at the evidence before your own eyes. Luke chapter 11, 21 has the same uh, message. Uh, and uh, the, the Lord on that occasion uh, just twisted or, 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 or used uh, language slightly differently. But he made the same point. He said, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armour wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. I wonder if there was um, a slight nod in the way in which the Lord was speaking to these men with respect to Rome's dominion over the Jews and the people of Israel at this time. Because this is exactly what had happened uh, to Israel. The strong man had come. And he had entered in and taken control and rule over Israel. And uh, these scribes and Pharisees may well have been somewhat uh, sheepish at the way in which the, the, the people of Israel um, had been dominated now uh, by Rome. But do you see the spiritual dimension of this also? Do you see that this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ's victory on the cross This is the Lord testifying about what the gospel actually is. That this is how the Lord Jesus Christ evidences his power every time a sinner is saved. Every time a soul is plucked from the the fire. Every time um, the Lord Jesus Christ brings one of those who are in in, in thrall of, of Satan into a newness of life. It is seen when the Lord Jesus Christ sets up his church in the world. It is seen when the Lord Jesus Christ gathers his people to himself in the world. It is seen when the Lord Jesus Christ broke the grip of death and rose again from the tomb. It is seen when he ascends into heaven and reigns upon his throne in heaven. And it is seen as he reigns in the hearts of his subjects. And it shall be seen when he shall deliver his bride in all of her purity, in all of her brilliance, in all of her righteousness, safe to his Father, and that great consummation of all eternity takes place. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ breaking the grip of Satan's power and releasing that people that were under his dominion. And these two stories, these two pictures, these proverbs and parables that the Lord Jesus Christ uses, they build upon one another. Satan doesn't fight Satan in this world, but the Lord Jesus Christ 
has both fought and defeated the adversary of the elect. We're told in scripture that we have an adversary. We, we, we have an accuser. We have uh, uh, the, the, the presence of the devil who goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But we have a champion. We have the Lord Jesus Christ and we can go to Christ. We, we have a victor. We have the evidence of the Lord Jesus Christ's superiority over Satan. And so when we feel the temptations of the devil, when we feel the weakness of our flesh, when we feel the anxieties rising within our hearts at the temptations of the world around about us, we know that we have one who is superior to all of these foes, all of these demons, all of this devilish work of, the, of nature and of the flesh that goes on in this world. We are a called out people and we are called out to serve the living God and to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ so that we go following after him. And when we feel the attacks of the devil, we know that we have a place where we can hide. We have a shield. We have a defender. We have a cleft in the rock in which we can hide. And when we are tempted and when we sin and when we fall, we know that that which accomplished the victory on the cross, the precious blood of Jesus Christ, still avails for sinners like us. And therefore, we are consoled and comforted. We are encouraged and we are blessed in this knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ has fought a battle on our behalf, has won a war for his people, and we can go to him every time we need his help and his uh, blessing. The third aspect of the Lord's... um, Message, his defense, his apology, if you like, if I can use that word, against the accusation of uh, these uh, scribes and Pharisees is to turn their argument against them. He has shown us how foolish and ludicrous it is to imagine that Satan will fight against Satan because. Any house that does that, any kingdom that does that, will soon be divided and defeated. He has shown us also that it takes a stronger man than the strong man armed to enter into his palace, to bind him up and suppress him and defeat him in order to liberate those that were under his charge. And he has shown us that he is the one who both is able and has accomplished that great work of deliverance, that great work of redemption. For this is surely the redeeming power of the blood of Jesus Christ, that blood that was shed in the cross and that power that was exhibited in his defeat of death and his bursting open of the grave to show that he had domination over Satan, the strong man. But now having exposed the fallacy of these scribes' arguments, he turns and accuses them. And he gives us an account of the existence of what we 
now sometimes call the unforgivable sin. So look with me at verse 28, please, and verse 29. Because here he is turning an accusation back upon these men. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation, because they said he hath an unclean spirit. So Christ performed these miracles through the Spirit of the Holy Ghost. But these men said, no, 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 that's not the Spirit of God at work. That is the Spirit of Satan at work. And that, says the Lord Jesus Christ, is an unforgivable sin. To go to the parallel passage uh, of, of this account in Mark, in verse 31 of chapter 12, we read this, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. How careless men are with their precious souls. Men and, and women will utter all manner of blasphemy against God by their words, by their works, and by their desires they show a complete disregard for their eternal well-being. We, we, we must surely be amazed when we see the extent and the degree to which Men and women will labour and exercise themselves to improve their lot in this life. And whether it's through education or whether it's through the, the, the labour of, of their minds or, or, or their muscles, they will endeavour to improve themselves in this world. Or whether it's the care that they take to exercise their bodies, to, to, to watch their, their figures, to look after their weight, or to take care of their health and make sure that they have suitable supplements and vitamins and, and, and proper uh, nutrition. Or to safeguard themselves with their insurances and, and their Medicare and, and all that can be done to keep themselves bodily fit and healthy. So we see the anxiety that is generated when something unforeseen comes into our society. And men and women will labour day and night often in order to secure their physical, mental uh, uh, well-being, emotional well-being in this world. But why is there so little interest in spiritual well-being? And why are men and women so careless with their souls? How merciful our God is yet to extend the day of grace to sinners like us. How merciful is our God to yet redeem by the blood of Jesus Christ Men and women who are thoughtless and careless of their soul's well-being and who are blasphemers against God. 
and save them despite their awful curses against him. And yet this verse is telling us something. It is telling us that for all men and women do and say and how they live against God the Father and God the Son. There is a blasphemy against God the Holy Spirit that is not to be forgiven. Not now in this world or in eternity. Blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven. Now we've already endeavoured to make clear, and let me again repeat myself if I may, that this is not a casual or a, a as it were, a, a simple, ignorant or, or flippant utterance that is being made by people. What we have before us here is the purposeful opposition to the Holy Spirit. And it is a blatant denial of the work and ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to, to remind you and, and, and to, to point out to you this evening that so egregious is this sin that not one of the elect can ever commit it. This sin evidences that there is no pardon for it. There is no redemption sufficient for it. There is no regeneration for the one who commits it. And there is only the reprobation of that soul and the eternal judgment of God against it. But the irony is that the very presence of these verses in the word of God, the very utterance of the Lord Jesus Christ upon this subject has generated, I am certain, a tremendous amount of anxiety amongst the sin-sensitive child of God or children of God. I doubt that there is a true child of God who has not feared at some point or another that they have committed this unpardonable or unforgivable sin. And the reason why that is such a prevalent thought in the minds of sin-sensitive individuals is that Satan knows that verses like these from the scripture, and remember Satan knows the Bible better than the rest of us. He was able to quote it to the Lord Jesus Christ when he tempted the Lord Jesus Christ. So we may well be assured that he will quote it when he tempts us also. We will not get away with any temptation that the Lord Jesus Christ was not called to endure. Satan knows that these verses are in Scripture and he knows that he is able to exert leverage against those who are sensitive to sin in their lives. 
So what the devil is able to do then is that he is able to come and say to us, well, you're not one of the Lord's people because you've committed this sin and none of the Lord's people are able to commit this sin. You cannot be born again because no child of God who has been born again would ever commit a sin like this. And you've committed that. He comes and he tells us that we are lost, that we are without hope in this world, that we are not the elect children of God, but we are reprobate. And such is the force of the argument that he brings that all of us, at one time or another, to a greater or lesser degree, read these verses and wonder if perhaps we are guilty of the sin here spoken of and we have fallen foul of its judgment. But this is important. Listen to me on this point. No person who seeks forgiveness for committing the unforgivable sin will fail to find it. Because no one who seeks forgiveness for this sin has ever actually committed it. The very fact that we fear that we have committed this sin is evidence that we have not committed it. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom, spiritually speaking, does not come to the natural man. The carnal man receiveth not the things of the Lord. The natural man cannot experience any spiritual insight or understanding, cannot have any fear that they have committed this sin. But those whose sins are forgiven, those who are sensitive to the commitment of sin in their own lives, for whom sin is a grievous thing, they are the ones who are most sensitive and subject to these temptations. The reprobate do not care if they have committed this sin. They have not the fear of God in them. They love their sins. They cherish and feed off of their sins. Indeed, they feed their sins and they endeavour to enlarge and engage with their sin to the satisfaction of their lusts. But the elect of God, they loathe their sin. They fear offending God. They fear grieving the Holy Spirit. They desire pardon and forgiveness more than anything else. They want to feel clean. The very first occurrence of the, of the word forgiveness in the King James Version of the Bible is in, in Psalm 130 verse 4. And, and here's, here's what it says. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Do you have the fear of the Lord in you? Do you, do you fear 
the, the, the judgment of God? Do you fear being left under the wrath of God? Do you fear hearing those words which say, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you? That fear is a spiritual enlightenment. There is forgiveness with God that he might enter into our spiritual understanding and show us that pardon which he alone can give. Psalm 25 verse 11 says, For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. And we can go to that one whose name is the Lord our righteousness. We can go to that one who takes the name the anointed one, who takes the name the Christ, that one who is the Lord Jesus, our Saviour. And we can say to him, for thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. And Isaiah 55 verse 7 says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And this is the God with whom we have to deal. This is the God to whom we go. And we shall do well to remember this. Because when Satan comes and says to us, you've committed the unforgivable sin. You've been guilty of the unpardonable sin. There is no pardon for you. God says he will pardon us. He will abundantly pardon. He will have mercy upon us. And Satan says, you've gone too far. You've crossed the line. You're out there. Who will you believe? Are you going to believe Satan, who is the father of lies and the great deceiver? Or will you believe God? who says that he delights in mercy and he will abundantly pardon and forgive. John tells us, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. And it is upon that verse, it is upon the blood of Christ, it is upon the ground of this promise, that we have pardoning hope. We have the hope, the good hope, the promise of God. We have the promise of pardon from our God who is faithful. Upon his great faithfulness, he who is faithful and just, we take confidence to approach God's throne on the ground of his promises and the blood of Jesus Christ. We confess our guilt. We acknowledge our unworthiness. But we delight in him who delights to be merciful to sinners. 
We see that the Lord Jesus Christ in hanging on the cross took upon himself the sins of his people. We see that in shedding his blood he cleansed their sins. And we confess that we have no rights in and of ourselves. We have no entitlements before the holiness of God. We have no claim upon him. But the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. Who declares. I know thee by name. And thou hast found grace in my sight. John chapter 6 verse 37 says. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he that cometh to me. I will in no wise cast out. Let us go to Christ. Let us go to him for forgiveness. Let us call upon God on the foundation and by the merits of that precious blood. And let us know this, that our God delights to be merciful to sinners who call upon his name. And him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Amen. May God bless to us these thoughts this evening.